From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America, more than 400,000 Americans are living with MS. March is Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month. We'll discuss diagnosis and treatment of MS with a Mayo Clinic expert. The first defined MS medications were approved in 1993, and now we have up to 15 different medications. But we have injectable therapies, we have three oral medications, and we have a few infusion-based medications and chemotherapy-based medications for patients with multiple sclerosis. Also on the program, we'll discuss why caution is necessary when taking common pain relievers. And we'll learn how a bone marrow transplant is done. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Multiple sclerosis, commonly known as MS, is a potentially disabling disease of the central nervous system. In MS, the immune system attacks the protective sheath, called myelin, that covers the nerve fibers and causes communication problems between your brain and the rest of your body. Eventually, the disease can cause the nerves themselves to deteriorate or potentially become permanently damaged. Signs and symptoms of MS vary widely and depend on the amount of nerve damage and which nerves are affected. Some people with severe MS may lose the ability to walk independently or at all, while others may experience long periods of remission without any new symptoms. March is MS Awareness Month. Here to discuss multiple sclerosis is Mayo Clinic Neurologist and MS MS Division Chair, Dr. Mark Keegan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Keegan. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me here. So, Dr. Keegan, obviously MS can be a potentially debilitating condition of the nervous system. So, in 2017, do we know the cause of MS? Well, we know a lot about the cause of multiple sclerosis. We can't identify it in individual patients, but we do know there are a number of factors that contribute to the susceptibility to multiple sclerosis. One of those is genetic susceptibility. About 20% of our patients have a first-degree family member who has multiple sclerosis. Of course, that means about 80% do not have a family history, Mm -hmm. and there's a clear environmental component to multiple sclerosis as well. Some of the environmental things that we know about are exposure, particularly later in childhood and adolescence, to Epstein-Barr virus infection. Other things that are likely to be extremely important are serum vitamin D levels, with lower levels being increased the susceptibility to risk for multiple sclerosis. The amount of sunlight exposure somebody gets is, in addition to the vitamin D, also likely important. And both of those factors likely contribute to the greater likelihood of developing multiple sclerosis in people that live in northern climes in the northern hemisphere and those that live in southern climes of the southern hemisphere. I always wondered if the part of the world where you live, if that didn't have more to do with the first thing that you mentioned, which is the family history piece. And I suppose it goes hand in hand, actually. Absolutely. I think you're right about that. Caucasian people tend to live in those areas. So Mm -hmm. I think part of it is genetic in those areas. But there probably is, in addition to that, uh, this environmental component that uh, is a strong Uh, risk factor for the development of multiple sclerosis as well. Is there a typical age when someone is diagnosed with with MS? Yes, there is. If you looked at the data, most people are diagnosed between the ages of, say, 15 and 55. Now, that being said, there are patients with pediatric onset 
multiple sclerosis. That means in younger people than age 15 or 16. So you can get it even at those ages. In fact, uh, one of my colleagues is a pediatrician who specializes in pediatric multiple sclerosis care. Does pediatric multiple sclerosis differ from the adult form? It does differ in some ways, but some of the medications that we use for adult onset multiple sclerosis are very similar in that. So obviously we've talked about the genetic predisposition and um, also the uh, you were talking about the northern versus southern disposition. What are the sort of symptoms that one may experience, especially early on in this condition? Well, it's a great question, and multiple sclerosis only affects the central nervous system, myelin. Okay. It doesn't affect the peripheral nervous system. Can you explain the difference between the central and the peripheral system? Absolutely. The central nervous system includes the optic nerves, the white matter of the brain, mm-hmm. and back of the brain called the cerebellum, the brain stem, which is the lowest part of the brain, and the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. That's what makes up the central nervous system. The nerves that travel from the spinal cord out to the muscles uh, are the peripheral nervous system, which is unaffected by MS. And these, uh, what we're talking about, these nerve fibers, they're like the electrical cables, would you say, coming from your brain and your spinal cord that allow you to, for example, move your, your arms and your legs? Yeah, that's a great analogy, a great comparison. So how is MS diagnosed when you've got somebody that shows up that they're having some issues, difficulty, whatever it might be? What are the things that they present with? Well, I always look at the diagnosis of MS as coming in three steps. There's no one blood test that says somebody has multiple sclerosis or doesn't. But we are very good at making that diagnosis based on what I say are three steps. First of all is do they have the classical clinical features of MS? Now, what are those? I mentioned that the optic nerves, brain, spinal cord are affected by MS. If you have inflammation due to MS, you get very specific symptoms related to where that inflammation occurs. For instance, if you have inflammation of the optic nerve, you often get painful loss of vision in one eye. Mm -hmm. It usually comes on over a number of hours to days, stays impaired for usually days to weeks, and then might improve either spontaneously or if you're given steroids for that. If the brain is affected, you might get loss of sensation on the face, arm, and leg on the side opposite to where the inflammation is. If the cerebellum is affected, you might get unsteadiness, particularly on one side more than the other. And if the spinal cord is affected, you might get what we call a sensory level, which is reduced sensation from one area all the way down to your feet. You also get a motor weakness associated with spinal cord inflammation, which means loss of muscle strength, as well as you may get bowel and bladder impairment related to that as well. That's why everybody presents with different symptoms, because it could be the eye, the brain, or the cerebellum part. Exactly right. So, Dr. Keegan, when you, when you go through those symptoms, I'm thinking a lot of that sounds like a stroke. How, how do you make the, the diagnosis then between those two entities? Because they sound similar. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. Usually, however, strokes come on very suddenly, okay. almost immediately. That's the history on most strokes, whereas inflammation due to MS usually reliably comes on, as I mentioned, over hours to days, plateauing over a number of days, and then improving over time. I see. Why is it that sometimes people will, you know, 
I have family members who have MS, and they'll say, my MS is actually doing pretty great now. Is it because they're on the right medication? Is it because it's being managed correctly? Or is it is that, again, a combination of how it's how their progression is going? Absolutely. I mean, uh, our medications that we have for multiple sclerosis are aimed at reducing the number of attacks somebody has and the number of MRI lesions they have. So that's a certain uh, possibility. The other things are that uh, we know that the natural history of MS, some people will have quiescent or remissive uh, disease uh, even uh, without medication. So either of those are possibility. Meaning that it just comes and goes unexplained? Uh, it can come and go uh, irregularly. Yes, okay. that's right. But is MS fatal? Uh, it only rarely is fatal. Most patients with MS, they might have a slight reduction in lifespan, uh, but rarely is it fatal. It can be fatal, but that's uncommon. Dr. Keegan, you mentioned uh, MRI. Is, is that the way MS is diagnosed, or are there, is there, for example, a blood test that one has? Well, that's exactly right. And if we get back to the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, like I mentioned, the, the first critical p- component is do they have the typical features clinically of multiple sclerosis. The second part is the neurological examination, which I won't describe too much. Uh, but the last part is investigations. Mm-hmm. You mentioned MRI scans. That is by far the most sensitive way to diagnose multiple sclerosis. We do MRI scans of the central nervous system, the brain, the cervical spinal cord, which means the neck, and the thoracic spinal cord, which means the mid-back. Additional investigations that we do sometimes are a lumbar puncture, which looks at the cerebrospinal fluid, uh, and there are some characteristic features of that that are often found in patients with MS. Some people will go on to have other blood tests, mostly to rule out other conditions that might mimic MS rather than MS per se. As I mentioned, there's no one blood test that uh, is reliable in finding that. So when I think of uh, an MRI scanner, I think of it like a TV. You have like the high-definition TVs and the older-definition TVs. Does that make a difference when you're trying to scan somebody's brain for, MR, uh, for uh, MS using the MRI scanners, for example, what we have at Mayo Clinic? Mm-hmm. Well, we do have uh, superior imaging with MRI scans here at Mayo Clinic. Brain MRI scans uh, routinely are of good quality now. Spinal cord MRI scan, however, uh, which is very important in the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, uh, we can offer very superior spinal cord imaging, uh, which is often very important. We've been talking about MS and the diagnosis of MS, what causes it, with Division Chair Dr. Mark Keegan as we recognize Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month. When we come back, we're going to talk about treatment and what future research holds. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, women with MS can't or shouldn't have children. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We've been talking about multiple sclerosis with neurologist Dr. Mark Keegan. Dr. Keegan, myth or matter of fact, women with MS can't or shouldn't have children. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, overall, that's a myth. We have patients that get pregnant with multiple sclerosis routinely. MS affects more women than men and it's often of childbearing age. This is a very important uh, lifestyle issue, developing, having families. It's very important. And by all means, uh, many of our women with multiple sclerosis do have uh, successful pregnancies. 
So how is MS treated with a patient once, I mean, I suppose each patient isn't exactly the same, but let's talk about the treatment and then the future treatment. Well, we're fortunate in multiple sclerosis that there's been a real explosion in the number of treatments available for our patients. The first defined MS medications were approved in 1993 with uh, beta-interferon, and now we have up to 15 different medications for multiple sclerosis. Generally, this is for the relapsing or remitting form of multiple sclerosis where people have attacks, as we mentioned earlier in the program, with remissions after that. But we have injectable therapies that are the traditional interferons and glutyramir acetate, which is also known as copaxone. We have three oral medications, and we have a few infusion-based medications and chemotherapy-based medications for patients with multiple sclerosis. So when you mention these uh, treatments, are these lifelong treatments or just when patients are having flares? That's a very good question. What they are really meant for is for indefinite therapy, meaning as long as somebody has relapsing or remitting multiple sclerosis and are tolerant of the medications, they generally remain on them. And then in terms of um, other treatment options we, we discussed earlier on, we hear a lot about stem cells. What do you, what, what's, how are we doing with stem cells in the treatment of multiple sclerosis? Well, stem cell treatment for multiple sclerosis, really when you get right down to it, currently is of ablation of the immune system. What, with, what, what do you mean by that? It means getting rid of the immune system by using very high-powered chemotherapy agents. Mm-hmm. What that is suspected to do is possibly reboot the immune system so that the immune system that attacks the myelin sheath in patients with multiple sclerosis will either be hate, uh, reduced or eliminated completely. When they do give the stem cells back to the patient, mostly that's so that they recover from such an immune uh, or an ablation of their immune system that's so profound. Um, does that assist them getting better? It's possible. Uh, but stem cell treatment, taking stem cells and planting them back into the central n- nervous system, uh, really is not an option currently. If the first drugs came in 1993, is that what you said? That's a that's a lot of ground that's been covered in almost 25 years. What do you think will be in the next 25 years? Well, it's a lot of ground, and in fact, many of those medications are only in the last uh, five to ten years. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of change for patients. It's a huge change. It's good for our patients uh, to have that type of option, absolutely. So what does what does the future hold then? It's a great question. As I mentioned, most of those medications were relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis, and we think that the relapses are really related to inflammation. So what I tell patients is those medications are mostly anti-inflammatory medications. They calm down that inflammation. One of the concerns about multiple sclerosis is, however, is that later on in the disease, and this is where people accrue or develop most of their disability, is from progressive multiple sclerosis. And some patients with what we call primary progressive multiple sclerosis have never had attacks before, but they do worsen over time. And up until very recently, there had been no medication that had been shown to improve that form of multiple sclerosis. There is one medication that has just been reported uh, at the end of 2016 uh, that has the potential to improve outcomes in patients with primary progressive multiple sclerosis, and that medication is called ocrelizumab. It looks like that medication is effective for that, but there's only been one trial. The other drawback is we're just getting used to that medication, and could there be safety issues that come up 
uh, that were indicated by those studies, that's still a possibility. And so uh, we're optimistic but cautiously optimistic about a medication like that for progressive multiple sclerosis. So, Dr. Keegan, you talk about the progression of the disease and the new treatments. Are they available to all patients, or do they need to go to specialist centers and be enrolled in trials? Well, uh, many uh, progressive treatments for multiple sclerosis will be in clinical trials now, uh, and there's other medications that are being developed, both immunosuppressive medications, immunomodulatory medications, as well as potentially neuroprotective medications, because that is really the next step, uh, as you mentioned, in MS care is halting, reversing progressive impairment due to multiple sclerosis. March is Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month. Why is it important to have an awareness month? Well, I've, I think as you mentioned, Tracy, there's most people know about multiple sclerosis because it's not rare. Many people have family members, friends that are affected by multiple sclerosis. It occurs in younger people. It's a lifelong disease, even though it could be well, very well controlled. And uh, so I think it is important that people are aware about it, aware of these new medications that we have for multiple sclerosis, aware of the developments in research and at uh, tertiary care institutes like multiple, like uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, which have an expertise in treating this disease. You mentioned earlier about family and friends and loved ones. How can they support their family members who are suffering from multiple sclerosis? Well, I think uh, one of the things is uh, they can be well-educated about it having uh, their loved ones or affected family members seek advice, care at high-quality areas, get information from reliable sources like the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. That's very critical. It's not unusual to have a disease that's not rare, that's out there, to have a lot of misinformation on the Internet and other areas where people access information. So I think that's important to be aware of, and getting high-quality, reliable information is very, very important. We've been discussing multiple sclerosis with Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Mark Keegan. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Keegan. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, I'll step aside as Dennis Dota joins Dr. Kakar as co-host. We'll discuss over-the-counter pain medication, and we'll learn about bone marrow transplant from a Mayo Clinic expert. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. When it comes to heart health, we focus on numbers, blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, and weight. New research shows we should also count activity. Because that can have an impact on those numbers. Dr. Amy Pollack says a study in the journal Creative Nursing shows women who walk briskly for 150 minutes a week, that's about 30 minutes, five days a week, can improve their heart numbers and heart health. Blood pressure and weight improved in under three months' time with just moderate walking exercise. The study also shows rewarding yourself with a special cup of coffee or a treat other than food boosts incentive and gets you to exercise more. Really can help you to improve the amount of time that you spend exercising. Dr. Pollock says walking is great exercise, but she also says any activity that gets you moving and your heart rate up is good for your heart health. 
And in other news, the nation continues to be in the thick of cold and flu season. Mayo Clinic infectious diseases specialist Dr. Pratish Tosh says many people who have common cold and flu symptoms may feel obligated to go to work. However, he says the best option may be to stay home to avoid infecting others. He says it does benefit everybody else if you stay home until you're no longer having fevers for about 24 hours. The typical length of illness for influenza symptoms is five to six days, though a cough may linger. So if you're sick for longer than 72 hours, it's a good idea to contact your health care provider. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. And I'm Dennis Dutta. All those aches and pains, I mean, when your knee acts up or your back feels sore, you may head to the medicine cabinet to try to find some pain relief medication. But before you reach for those pills, you may want to think twice. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, boy, that's a mouthful, or NSAIDs are medications commonly used to treat pain and inflammation, but these drugs can increase your risk of a heart attack or stroke. Example of these NSAIDs include ibuprofen, commonly known as Advil or Motrin, naproxen, also known as Aleve, and prescription NSAIDs such as Celebrex. So, how do we know which medications to use and then how much of that medication to take? Here to discuss NSAIDs and their risk is Dr. Reka Mankad, Director of the Cardio-Rheumatology Clinic at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Mankad. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, doctor, I mean, how would these types of medications increase our cardiovascular risk? Well, that's a great question, and I don't think we know a specific one answer. What we do know is that these medications have been linked to heart disease, particularly heart attacks, and it's more common when somebody already has had a heart problem. We think it has something to do with the prostaglandin inhibition. Uh, There might be some specific prostaglandin that's beneficial to an artery wall that's inhibited with these drugs, but we don't fully know the whole scope of the reason why. So what are, what are these drugs doing? Are they making the cells less sticky, or are they preventing you from, for example, your blood vessels getting thicker? What are they doing? Well, again, I'm not sure that we totally know. Uh, I don't believe that it's actually doing anything with the red blood cells itself, but probably something more related to the artery and the wall of the artery and changing how that artery works or functions. Um, but again, I don't think we really fully know. Uh, this came about somewhat accidentally uh, with uh, specifically the COX-2 inhibitors, where a big study was seen back in 2003 or so, and it was found that one of the ones that was uh, on the market at that time was actually increasing cardiovascular events, and it was actually taken off the market for that specific reason. Wow. You know, a lot of us kind of resort to trial and error when we have these aches and pains. Some people, you know, think one type works better if they've got knee pain, another if you have a headache. How am I going to know which drug's going to be the most effective for my pain? You know, aspirin, ibuprofen, naproxen, etc. I think it's very specific for your ache and pain. I don't b- believe that there's one that works for one specific ache or pain. But the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the NSAIDs, are all under one big group, and all of these are types of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, ibuprofen, um, uh, naproxen. The question is, is you know, at what point does it just help your ache and pain, and the, 
versus at what point does it increase your cardiovascular risk. And that's what uh, some of these studies have looked at as to, you know, what is the safety of these. And in fact, if you look at all of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, there is a warning uh, on the package insert that talks about an increased risk of cardiovascular events. Now, right now, we don't know if it's a specific dose, if it's how long you take the drug, but most uh-huh. people would say that you want to take what the package tells you to take, sort of the lowest dose uh, at a less frequent interval for the shortest duration to deal with your symptoms. But a lot of patients with osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis take these drugs chronically, and that's where the risk may be much higher. So, Dr. Mankad, we've just had a snow uh, uh, fall, and a lot of people have been shoveling, and all the weekend warriors, and they're having aches and pains. What, what would you advise them? Well, I think, you know, again, you should take a medication if you do feel uncomfortable. If you can't relieve it with just sort of rest and maybe heat or cold or whatever on the joint, then taking these drugs, it's not that you have to be afraid to take one dose of an ibuprofen medication or naproxen. I think what you have to realize, though, is if you start taking three to four pills multiple times a day for a week or longer, that you we have to start worrying. But again, the jury is out a little bit because a big study that just came out of the New England Journal showed that the overall incidence was low for uh, the different types of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. But again, they were using much higher doses. So when we get into higher doses that's when we worry a little bit more and some of these aren't there some of them are over the counter so people have them at home and they take them whenever they feel the need and it's hard to keep track of how much somebody's taking so it's very hard to control so you're trying not to take too much of this over the counter and said um, are there alternatives that I can turn to if I feel like I've kind of hit my threshold? Well, the a prescription um, NSAID that's available, Celebrex, which is also a COX-2 inhibitor. You uh-huh. know, I just mentioned how one was taken off of the market a few years ago. Well, Celebrex was kept on the market, but uh, the goal was to do a large st- uh, study, which is what just came out in the New England Journal, which was called Precision. And it looked at Celebrex and compared it to naproxen, which is Aleve, versus ibuprofen. And they saw that there was actually there was what's called non-inferior so all of them looked the same so there was not an increased risk of heart events in the Celebrex group but there's a lot of controversy over the study because a a good portion of the patients uh, two-thirds actually dropped stopped taking the drug and about 30 percent almost uh, were lost to follow-up so you know there's still a lot of uh, questions out there and whether this truly shows that all the non-set, uh, non-steroidals are equal. Hard to draw a conclusion. Very hard. Okay. So what would you advise, uh, obviously, in your clinical practice in rheumatology and in, in orthopedics, we see a lot of patients on anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. medication, and you mentioned Celebrex. I mean, that's like the bee's knees. Right. <laughs> what should I be saying to, to the patients when I see them? And there, a lot of them have been on it for a long period of time. Right. And so I have this discussion as well with the patients I've seen in cardiorheumatology. And in fact, it's one of the questions I specifically ask, how much are you taking of non-steroidals and which one? Um, and I tell them that if they can take something else, you know, can you take an acetaminophen or Tylenol instead? Um, and do you have to take it every day chronically? But all I can tell them is right now they have to understand that there's an increased risk. Now, the downside is I'm in pain. Mm -hmm. So how do you juggle those two things? And we certainly don't want them uh, falling to a opioid uh, pain reliever, something, you know, a narcotic. Yes. So it's a very, very tricky discussion to have, but I just inform them that there's this risk. Now, if they have established heart disease, I think the risk is higher, and those people I really try to figure out ways that they can come off. Now, again, the patients I have, 
have have rheumatologic diseases. So I go back to the rheumatologist and say, are we sure we can't control the disease with something else from a rheumatologic arena so that we're not relying on pain pills? If my doctor's not as well-versed in cardiovascular risk as you are, what are a few really good questions I can ask them to know that I'm getting the proper answers for myself? Well, as far as asking your general uh, doctor, you always want to tell them what medicines you're taking. I think most of us sort of just fall back on what's prescription. And uh, I think you have to, as a patient, as a consumer, you want to make sure your doctor knows everything you're taking, and that includes the -the over-the-counter medications as well. So if there are over-the-counter medications and they include non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you want to have your doctor be aware of that so you can discuss the pros and cons. Now, you mentioned uh, Celebrex, for example, and that works differently to, say, ibuprofen. So does it matter if you've been on Celebrex and then stop that and then start an- another anti-inflammatory medication, or it's just the group in general? Right now, it's the group in general. Okay. Uh, it is sort of classed under the group. There had been some earlier reports that uh, naproxen may be not as bad for you as ibuprofen, um, and that Celebrex might be worse. But the recent study that came out showed them fairly equal and actually suggested that the Celebrex may be slightly better from a, cardiova- from a bleeding standpoint, because it is a specific COX-2 inhibitor. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas the others inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2, and I know that's getting very scientific, but what the benefit was supposed to be for the COX-2 was to protect the stomach uh, and the bleeding risks with the stomach. So, um, you know, switching from one to the other, you might maybe help your stomach out a little bit going from um, the uh, ibuprofen or Aleve to a Celebrex, but the cardiovascular benefit doesn't seem to be different. A lot of wonderful insights here. We've been talking about NSAIDs with Mayo Clinic's director, of the Cardio Rheumatology Clinic, Dr. Wake Mankat. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Mankat. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about bone marrow transplant from a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dennis Stoda. And I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. Every year, more than 10,000 people in the United States are diagnosed with life-threatening diseases such as leukemia or lymphoma, for which a bone marrow transplant is the best or only treatment. And a bone marrow transplant is also known as a stem cell transplant. It's a procedure that infuses healthy blood stem cells into your body to replace your damaged or diseased bone marrow. And these cells can come from your own body, or they can even come from a donor. Here to discuss bone marrow transplant is the Director of Bone Marrow Transplant Program at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Dr. William Hogan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hogan. Thank you very much, Sanj and Dennis. Just just so I can understand, basically, now when you're talking about a bone marrow transplant, what what exactly is that? So uh, bone marrow transplant kind of encompasses a a number of different procedures. So there is both autologous and allogeneic bone marrow transplant, and they're quite different. And so the majority of patients that we have in Rochester undergo autologous bone marrow transplant, about three-quarters compared to about a quarter undergoing allogeneic transplant. An autologous transplant is where we take your own cells and then use high-dose chemotherapy to kill a leukemia or a lymphoma or multiple myeloma and then infuse your own cells back in once again. And so it's really relying on the high-dose chemotherapy to try and uh, kill the leukemia or the myeloma cells and not so much on the donor cell, on the cells. An allogeneic transplant is a little bit different. Uh, That involves uh, getting a donor. So it's more like a solid organ transplant where you might think of somebody getting a kidney transplant where there's a donor involved. And that's in a situation where we think that the uh, chemotherapy alone is not sufficient to eradicate the disease. 
and we use the immune system of the donor to help out there and try and eradicate the residual leukemia or lymphoma cells, and sometimes that's more effective for certain type of diseases. And among those diseases, give us an idea of some of the predominant conditions in which a physician will turn to a bone marrow transplant to help their patient. So the majority of people that we see are people that have blood cancers of some sort. So usually things like multiple myeloma, lymphoma, uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or acute leukemias, or even a condition called myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a type of a bone marrow failure syndrome. Uh Sometimes we also use it for other bone marrow failure syndromes, such as aplastic anemia, where the bone marrow fails for whatever reason. And this can benefit somebody at any age? Essentially so. We have patients that uh, range in age from less than a month in our pediatric program to up into their 70s or very occasionally late 70s and and beyond. It depends on the type of procedure, and certain procedures are only appropriate for certain age groups, Uh, but uh, there may be an option depending on the whole spectrum of age. There might be an option available for that person. So you mentioned a a myriad of different conditions there. What, What are the sort of generalized signs and symptoms that somebody may be having that would uh, go along those conditions. Right, so it, it's really very uh, specific to the condition, but mm-hmm. for somebody with acute leukemia, for instance, oftentimes we see two main problems. One is where the bone marrow, uh, which is the factory for the blood cells, where that fails. And when you have a failure of the factory of the bone marrow producing cells, you can get a low hemoglobin, which is the oxygen-carrying red cells. And so that can lead to shortness of breath or fatigue or tiredness or just a general exhaustion. If you have a a failure of the white cell production, the white cells are very important in trying to prevent or treat infections. And so then people can sometimes get bloodstream infections or other types of infections, skin infections, lung infections, those kind of things. And finally, the third component is the platelets. And the platelets are very instrumental in preventing bleeding. And so sometimes bleeding or bruising uh, can be a presenting sign there as well. And it very much depends on the disease. For certain diseases like multiple myeloma, there's a very uh, strong bone-specific Uh, component to it. So sometimes bone fractures or bone disease, osteoporosis may be a component of that. Before we, you know, move on to the mechanics of performing a bone marrow transplant, people often uh, may have uh, mixed ideas about whether or not this is to achieve a cure or is this to control a condition. What's, what's the best outcome? So it depends, again, on the type of situation. There are outcomes in some circumstances where the goal is cure of the disease, and that's a permanent cure, uh, eradicating the disease permanently. There are other situations where that's not the goal, and it's not possible. And so in that situation, it may be that the, the goal is to try and help delay or prevent the progression of the disease for a period of time and then maybe spare that person from having other treatments in the meantime or maybe make other treatments more effective. So it very much depends on the type of disease and the scenario. So it's not really possible to give a general answer to that, but in some circumstances our goal is cure and in other circumstances the goal is trying to control the disease better and delay the onset of progression. I see. So you had mentioned there's basically two types of treatments. You either use your own cells or, or a donor cell. So if If you're using your own cells, for example, how does that process work? So typically, uh, today, we use a a peripheral blood stem cell collection. Peripheral blood is just our regular bloodstream, and stem cells are stem cells are the cells that basically form all of the other blood cells. And they normally reside in the bone marrow. And so as part of this process, what we do is give a medication to try and release the stem cells from the bone marrow into the blood, and then we collect them uh, through a catheter that goes into the arm or sometimes into the chest, kind of like dialysis. Mm -hmm. So the blood is processed through the machine, and then we skim off the uh, stem cells and then return the majority of the blood back to the patient. 
And then those cells are taken and stored, frozen, and then we uh, can then uh, give the patient a treatment that kills the leukemia or the lymphoma or the myeloma. That's usually high-dose chemotherapy. And the reason why we want to take the cells out in advance is so that those are protected from the chemotherapy and, and not injured. And then when the chemotherapy has done its job of trying to kill as much of the blood cancer as possible, then we infuse those cells back in again, and they are then not being exposed to the chemotherapy, so they're in a position then to try and replicate and reconstitute the bone marrow very quickly. Whereas uh, if we did this without taking out those stem cells, then they wouldn't be able to recover uh-huh. as well, or it would take a very, very long time to do that, and then that would complicate things and make the patient more prone to get into trouble with infection or other problems. And, and so how long does that take, for example? I mean, this is obviously not a same-day procedure. No. So normally uh, what we do is a patient goes through a bunch of screening tests to make sure that they're healthy enough and that we have things optimized as much as possible. Usually then we give growth factor shots uh, over a few days, and then we start collecting. So something like four days of growth factor shots, and then we start collecting for another two, three, four days, and then uh, freeze those cells. And then after that comes the part where the chemotherapy is given, and that's oftentimes given over one to four or five five days depending on the regimen, and then after that we infuse the cells back in again. It takes another couple of weeks for the blood counts to recover after that. And what about the situation where one needs to rely on a donor? So that's a, uh, there are many different donor options, and so oftentimes we think about it as being a, a family member, so a brother or sister, and so that's an option. But as we are seeing older and older patients that are candidates for bone marrow transplant, also their siblings are older, and sometimes they're not available or healthy enough to be considered as a donor. Mm. So if a sibling donor is not available, then the option we look at the unrelated donor registry. And so across the world, there's about 20 million people who have signed up to be considered as volunteers for a person that needs a bone marrow transplant. This is an amazing thing if you think about it. You know, somebody is just volunteering to take a week out of their life, go through this procedure of collection, and then uh, doing this for somebody that might be living across the world that they've never met and have no idea who they are. But people do this, and about 20 million people have signed up to do it. And so then they go through the collection process, and then we can infuse the cells after they get shipped here. There's two different types. Uh, Oftentimes we'll take peripheral blood, which I just described, or sometimes we'll actually do a bone marrow harvest where the person goes to the operating room and they have uh, a needle put in the back of the pelvis to extract bone marrow directly from uh, from the bone marrow, and then we use that as the source of graft. I see. Is there a risk associated with this? So being a donor, there are some risks, but in general it's, it's uh, well controlled and it's rare that a patient or a donor would undergo uh, long-term injury as a result. But there's always some risk with any procedure, and uh, uh, so we do counsel those donors uh, very carefully before going forward. Very good. Well, we appreciate uh, all of your insights this morning, and I'm sure people have a much better understanding of, of this whole process. Sure. Uh, just uh, as a final word, I would encourage people to go to betamatch.com. If they're interested in being a donor, there's a huge need for more donors. And if you are especially between the ages of 18 and 45, then please consider looking at Be The Match and seeing if you might be potentially considered as a donor as well. Bethematch.com. We've been talking with the director of the bone marrow transplant program at Mayo Clinic Rochester, Dr. William Hogan. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Hogan. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.